reading of God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you and you'll find this morning's text on page 2. Last week we began what should be about a 12-month long series through the 50 chapters of Genesis. And we saw that God indeed is the sovereign to whom we are accountable. He is the creator to whom we owe all of our adoration as he has created the heavens and the earth by speaking, by giving the word of his power to form and fashion all things in the space of six days and create them very good. And we talked about last week how subsequent reflection in the Bible often speaks of God's creative work as though he was stretching out a tent. We read that earlier in our call to worship from Psalm 104, this dwelling place, this temple. This is where God is going to meet with the man that he is going to create. And if you think of God's creation of all things as the temple, what we come to this morning in chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, which is our text, is very much the throne room of creation, this garden in Eden. So let me read the passage for us and then pray that God would bless our study and then we will begin our time together. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his perfect and powerful word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, Bedellium and onyx stone are there, and the name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed from the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. At Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we do thank You for Your truth. We thank You for Your kindness in giving it to us, speaking it to us, even breathing it out unto us by the Spirit. So teach us what we do not know. Help us to hear which we have not heard. Change our hearts that we might indeed repent and follow You as we must. Help us to see the life that is found in Jesus Christ alone. We pray that you would mold us and make us into his image and do good to us as we study this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was back in the summer of 2005 that the London Zoo put together an exhibit, a special exhibit that caused a small amount of cultural stir in the moment, because if you had walked up to this enclosure that was running for just a select period of time within the zoo's summer months, you would have seen a, a reading that said, warning, humans in their natural environment. What they had taken was eight homo sapiens from this online contest, put them behind this glass enclosure, and essentially said, come look at what humans do. You would find a sign that talks about their food, the threats, their species. The eight individuals passed the time playing board games. They would tan on the rocks. They would wave at the gawkers and the spectators that would be looking through the glass. And when asked about it, the zoo's spokesperson said the exhibit was meant to teach members of the public that the human is just another primate. One of the participants himself agreed when he said, when they see us as animals here, it kind of reminds them that we are nothing special. And all God's people said, oh no, <laughs> that is not correct. And we say that because we have Genesis chapter 2 in our Bible that says we are not mere animals. We are entirely different than the animal kingdom. We're not like the animals, we're lords over the animals is what the text is going to tell us today. Mankind, we said last week, is the crown of creation. It's the apex. It's the pinnacle of God's creative work. And what we see in our text today is God's creation of man and woman is utterly unique in all of His creation of all things in the universe. And so the theme for us this morning in our text is quite simple, God's special creation of man and woman. And maybe you noticed along the way how this is a text that is very much foundational to so many different things that the Bible subsequently will teach about. We might say it's a text full of points and purposes. So for example, what was God's point in creating man? The text is going to help us answer that question. What was God's point in forming this special garden in a land called Eden? What was the woman's point in her relationship with the man? What's the point of God's instituting the marriage covenant relationship? And what we're going to see by the end is something about the truth of life in paradise. 
Because outside of a couple places, maybe, in the prophets and Revelation, you'll find no more sustained, no longer glimpse into what life in paradise looks like, according to God's inspired word, than Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to see that life in paradise is all about living in God's presence with dependence and obedience. And so we'll get there by the end. You've got three simple parts within the passage, and we want to walk through it in this way. In verse 4 through 14, we'll see mankind created in Eden. Then verse 15 through 17, mankind created to worship. And then in the remainder of the text, verse 18 through 25, mankind is created for fellowship. Why is it that God is creating man in the way He's creating man and woman? Why is it that He places them in the garden? Why is it that they're to relate to each other in this way? points and purposes that do come out. But notice verse 1 as we see mankind created in Eden. I'm sorry, verse 4. Moses says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You know, if you're a careful student of Genesis, maybe in years past, you'll notice that this generational formula punctuates and marks off the book. It shows up 11 different times. These are the generations of Eleven different times it shows up in the books of 50 chapters. It's essentially a way for Moses to move the narrative along from one family to the next. And so as he's moving the narrative into the story of Adam and Eve, we're then, of course, told that these are the generations of man when God created the heavens and the earth. And there's something within verse 4, 5, and 6 that mirrors what we saw last week in verse 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. Some liberal scholars that don't believe the Bible is God's Word would say that Genesis chapter 2 is a totally different creation account that was added many, many years after Moses would have written Genesis chapter 1. But what you need to understand is what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is simply Moses zooming in on verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. It's those students, if you think about it this way, you went home today and pulled up a map on your computer or a map on your phone, and you saw this particular location, but then you wanted to zoom in on one specific destination. And that location was there in the bigger map, but when you zoom in, you start to see more details and more specifics. You start to see more foundations about that part of the map. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Last week, we had this stunning announcement that man male and female, created in God's image. Now it's as though Moses pauses the story, rewinds the tape, and says, let's pay attention by zooming in, zeroing into exactly how that happened. And verses 4, 5, and 6 do mirror also verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1, as it gives us this sense of which, if you just look through verses 5 and 6, that the land wasn't yet ready for man. There's no one to prepare the land. Just as last week we talked about the emptiness, the formlessness that existed in the world before God began to fashion and to form it after his own decree and plan. And so when the time came, of course, we get to verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, kids, if you remember from last week, you might remember 35 times in our text last week, we get the word God. But did you notice how in this passage, the name of God is different? You see that? 15 times in this passage, it's the Lord God. Last week, it was Elohim. This week, it's Yahweh Elohim. And it's quite important for us to recognize what Moses seems to be doing using one of God's other titles, one of God's other names. We're in Genesis chapter 1. It's this kind of plural majesty of God to show his power and his might in the work of all creation, that he's the transcendent Elohim God of all the universe. But then as he's 
zooms in on the creation of man, he's Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God. He's personal. He's near. He's intimate as he's forming and fashioning man, saying to the nation of Israel, the original audience for this moment, Yahweh who has called you out of Egypt into the promised land is not just the God of Israel. He's the Lord God of Adam, the head of all humanity. So you need to see who God is according to verse 7, but also how God works. Because what does He do? He takes dust from the ground, forms and fashions it into a man, into a person, but there's no life in man yet. What does He do to put life into man? He breathes into His nostrils. There's something interesting you could do if you had time along the way in the next few weeks, grab a church member, maybe you can do this, is trace out this kind of theme of God's breath in Scripture and understand how God's breath is His enlivening power for dead souls. So it's here that He fashions man and He wakes him up, puts life into him for the first time by breathing into his nostrils. Maybe you know another famous text in Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dry bones, and how is it that they come to life? Breath comes into them. How is it that new life comes into sinners? God breathing the gospel into their hearts through the Spirit. So why is it then that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 can say, all Scripture is what? God's breath. You must live by God's breath. You can today live by God's breath by beholding His Word. I wonder by what power and source you're trying to live your spiritual life in Jesus Christ. And maybe you notice also that we don't get this man's proper name until verse 20. Did you see that? We're not told he's Adam until verse 20. Up until verse 20, he's just man. But there's a, there's a wordplay happening in verse 7. Man in Hebrew in this passage is Adam. Out of the ground is Adama. It's this idea that there's this connectedness between man and the dirt. Man and the earth that he's to tend, man and the earth that he's to garden. There's this unique, inextricable link, and we're going to see something similar happens with the naming of the woman as she has this connectedness to the man. But then what we find out in verse 8 and following is God puts him in a particular place. In 1893, Chicago hosted what was known at the time as the World's Fair. And it became a fair that changed America, according to one historian. It was called a modern marvel of humanity at the time as Chicago was transformed into this white city. And one of the celebrated figures of putting this entire world's fair together was the chief gardener and landscaper. He had taken what was this kind of dry, arid area of Chicago and turned it into a place full of lagoons, a place full of hills and vegetation, over 200,000 plants and trees and other vegetation he brought into the area. Willow covers numbering some 30,000 began to, to mark off the beauty of this white city at the World's Fair. And many journalists at the time uh, smiled and smirked at this man's name. His first name has been lost to history, but the journalists recorded at the time as beginning with the letter E. His last name was D-E-H-N, Master Gardener and Landscaper named E. Den. Maybe something of a humble reflection of the true master gardener that you see. Notice verse 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden where? In Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
and the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I want to come back to the trees in just a minute, but for now I want to focus your attention on Eden. Uh, Maybe you know that the Bible often later on speaks of the Garden of Eden, but you see how verse 8 doesn't tell us that's what it is? It's the Garden in Eden. That Eden was a much bigger place than just a, a garden. It's out to the east, is what it says. Eden means delight, or can mean a place of many waters, which kind of makes sense, a place of many waters, when you just look through verse 10 through 14. Moses rattling off these rivers that are flowing into and out of and around the Garden of Eden, clearly creating a space that's altogether beautiful, altogether suitable uh, for mankind. Vegetation and flowers and plants in abundance and beauty. Even rich resources, you'll notice it talks about gold, it talks about bdellium, it talks about onyx, this place of incredible splendor that God is forming, that God is creating, that God is designing, that God is even sustaining in order for man, because he puts man right there. This is mankind created in Eden. And what we see is the purpose for why he's in Eden. Notice verse 15 through 17, created to worship. We're told in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So students, you want to pay attention to the verbs in verse 15, partly because they're really important. Partly because I'm not so sure the ESV gets many of them right, to be honest. The Lord God took the man. The actual word there is rested him in the Garden of Eden. Just as though God has redeemed Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and rested them in the promised land. So too is God taking Adam and resting him in the Garden of Eden. And his purpose was to work it and to keep it. Now, these verbs are subsequently used in the rest of the Old Testament, normally in priestly contexts, talking about a priest working in the temple, serving in the tabernacle. But these words actually are used in another place, and I think they're best translated as serve and obey. You can write this down, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 13. It's a pretty famous text in Moses' sermon there in Deuteronomy. And he says... What does the Lord, O Israel, require of you but to serve him with your heart and with all your soul and to obey his commandments and statutes? Adam rested in the garden to serve and to obey. Mankind is made to what? Worship the Creator. In obedience, you'll notice as verse 16 and 17 continue. Kids, this is the first command in all of Scripture. And notice what God says. The Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So you want to pay attention here to trees, don't you? You know, Dickens gave us a tale of two cities. What Moses, the Lord God, has given us here in Genesis 2 is very much a tale of two trees. Remember, the first tree is the tree of life. You look back at verse 9, this tree that's in the middle of the garden there in Eden. It shows up later on in verse 22 of chapter 3, so you can kind of glance your eyes over there, which clearly it seems to indicate if humanity was going to eat from this tree, they would achieve for themselves immortality. It's a tree of eternal life is what it is. But the focus on Genesis 2 and, frankly, on Genesis 3 in large part is on the other tree, uh, the tree of knowledge, knowledge of good and evil. And what this means is to eat of this tree not only would be breaking God's command, to eat of this tree would give knowledge of good and evil. In other words, it gives all knowledge. 
And in that context, for man and woman created originally righteous, what that means is for the first time, they're going to know evil. They're going to know sin. They're going to know lawlessness instead of simple innocence, simple blessedness, simple obedience and goodness. They will know all things. And of course, the penalty for such knowledge, God says, is death. It's pretty clear, this commandment. Eat of all the other trees, but just not that one. And our tradition in the Reformed and Presbyterian world has often come to this text and talked about the covenant of works that God made with Adam. And we even find language in Hosea 6-7 that talks about the covenant that God made with Adam. And its conditions are quite simple, aren't they? It commanded of Adam personal, perpetual, and total obedience on the pains of death. Personal, perpetual, and total obedience, lest he die. And sometimes, if you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, people conceive of the Christian life as being little more than this kind of system of rules and commands that must be obeyed lest a judgmental, wrath-filled God breaks out against humanity. And I want you to know this morning that if that's your understanding of the Christian life, it's not what the Christian life really is. It's surely a tactic of the devil to get people to think that, because notice what happens even in verse 16 and 17. The end of verse 16 says what? All the trees you may eat of, except one. God's goodness and grace. All the trees you may eat of that I've created for you, except one. But how often it is that Satan will come and tempt us to focus on the but one. As though it's proof that God is strict, unkind, lacking compassion. It's the kind of person that, you know, if you have someone come to them and they give hundred different statements, and 99 are encouragements, and one's a criticism. And they lose sleep over the one criticism, forgetting that 99 gracious words have been spoken otherwise. So this is the commandment, this is the covenant that he has made with Adam, created in the garden, created to worship, and we'll see in the remainder of the text, created for fellowship. Because notice what comes in verse 19 and 20. And kids, I want to see if you can kind of understand how majestic the scene would have been. Uh, God is bringing before Adam. It's always on this like garden perch. This long line just breaking out over the horizon. Animal after animal, bird after bird, beast after beast. All marching their way. God bringing them, as it were, by their hand to see Adam. And Adam sits there and says, all right, my commission as vice-regent and authority under God is to name the animal, because to name something is to have authority over it. So it's as though he was to look at the form of the animal, the function of the animal, and say, that's what you are. So they keep traipsing on through. And wouldn't you have loved to be there? The animal comes up. Adam, you know, looks at it, stares, and then says, hippopotamus. <laughs> the next one shows up. He stares, and then he says, platypus, fox, beagle, penguin, dolphin, chimpanzee, over and over and over. And the point is we're supposed to see over and over and over this lonely endeavor. Because look at the end of verse 20. What we're told, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, which is why we get the declaration of God in verse 18. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. 
There's lots of discussion that always come in this text about how to best translate helper because it's a Hebrew word that's hard to like, fully encapsulate in English. A term that we might invent to kind of get after what it means is something like counter partner, a, a person that is fit, that corresponds to Adam but isn't exactly like him, that's a partner in the work that God has given Adam to do. Of course, even the word helper itself is not some sort of relegation. It's just speaking of a distinct role because God often in Scripture is said to be a helper. Even in our tradition, we have a great hymn that many of you know, O God, our help in ages past. He needs a helper. He needs someone who's a suitable counterpartner to him. None of the animal kingdom is going to work, is what the point of the passage is. So God's going to do something about it. Earlier this week, I was talking with a brother here in the church, and Maybe it's because we're getting older. We were reminiscing about surgeries and procedures that have come into our lives and how grateful we were for anesthesia that knocks us out and makes sure that we don't have to endure the severity of the procedure otherwise. And I mean this in a reverent sense. Once we get in verse 21, or what we get there in verse 21, is God not just the sovereign creator of the universe, very much the divine anesthesiologist, because notice what he does with Adam. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. Now you should just consider the miraculous might of God in passages like this. He takes dust, forms a person, breathes life into that person. Then out of that person, he yanks out a rib. I will make woman out of this. Such is the all-powerful nature of the God whom we serve. And you know, in the course of my ministry, I've had many different occasions and privileges to officiate weddings. When you sit up and stand often up at the front of, of a wedding ceremony, you have kind of a unique glimpse not only into the participants in the wedding ceremony, but also the observers. And so you get to see who the observers tend to pay attention to as the wedding ceremony is going on. And of course, most of the attention is always on the groom or the bride, you know, the, the groom up there at the front, with some sense of eager anticipation, sometimes even anxious anticipation for his soon-to-be wife to come down the aisle, and the doors open, and she comes down the aisle, smiling, sailing down along the way. But there is another person, don't you know, that people often tend to pay attention to in a wedding ceremony? At least one in an ordinary service, the dad who gives away his daughter when the minister says, who gives this woman in marriage to this man? Eyes look at the dad, giving away his beloved one. And in the divine wedding ceremony of our text, we see God doing the exact same thing. You see the end of verse 22? The Lord brings the woman to Adam. And then in all of these texts, and all of these two chapters that are full of history, we get the first words from a human in all of Scripture. And he's breaking up the historical narrative to say in poetry, notice, verse 23. You want to read incredible excitement, surprise, and just longing now brought to fulfillment. This at last is bone of my bones, in flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And again, there's this kind of not just poetic sense with the words, there's a wordplay going on. Just as Adam comes from the Adamah, so is he naming her woman. Isha, and he is Ish. Woman to man. 
Isha to Ish, linking them together, which the Bible does in the rest of the text and commentary on this passage. You can think of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where it says the woman is the glory of man. For man was not created for woman, but woman was created for man. The wife is the splendor of the husband. And so what we get here, don't we, is very much we run into the doctrinal proof text for our understanding of Christian marriage. One man and one woman, bound in covenant relationship to one another for the perpetuity of their life. And students, what you need to know is that you increasingly live in a context and you increasingly live in a culture that loves to ask the satanic question of, did God really say? In a context and a culture that loves to ask such devilish questions largely in this issue of marriage. Did God really say marriage is between one man and one woman? Or did God really say that the husband is the head and the wife is the helper? Did God really say that sexual intimacy belongs only to the covenant relationship of marriage? Did God really say that? Yes, he did. I mean, notice even verse 24, Moses adds this editorial comment, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And far from being this doctrine of marriage, if you will, that's oppressive, that's rigid, that's against the flow of history, you need to see verse 25. This is altogether blessed. For what we're told is that the man and the wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, you want to maybe underline that word ashamed. It's kind of interesting in the Hebrew. It means more properly to blush. There's no blushing in paradise. There's no embarrassment in God's dwelling place. Maybe if you kind of tease it out how it's often used in the rest of the Bible, there's no hiding in the life of paradise open, honest, nothing but fully beheld before the Lord and before one another. This is mankind created for fellowship. So, why is Eve created? Why is the woman given to the man? Well, of course, he needs a companion. He, it's not good for him to be alone, but we also want to pair to it, don't we, from the end of Genesis chapter 1, is Adam needed a helper to bring about a race that would fill the earth and saturate the ends of the earth with the images that God has told him. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Adam could not do that by himself. He could not do that with another animal. He needed a counterpartner that could join him, bear children, Fill the earth. Extend the image in their companionship and devotion to one another. The authority of God given to them as his vice regents. That all the earth would know this is the sovereign creator God. That's the purpose of marriage. This is God's special creation of Adam and Eve. And what I want you to see now as we begin to close and maybe kind of think through it in a different way. What does life in paradise look like according to this passage? You know, earlier this summer, our oldest son, Hudson Mark, he went off to a summer camp. It was the longest he had been away from any of his siblings. And they were very much infatuated with this mystery Christian camp that he went to. And so when he called in for the first night on FaceTime, we were eating dinner. And the siblings, you know, were kind of stepping over each other in order to ask these kind of flooding questions that were earnestly at the front of their minds. What's it like there? What are you eating there? What are you doing there? What's the experience over there? And maybe, in a certain way, you've come to Scripture and even thought in your own life together, what's life like in paradise? What's it going to be like when the new heavens and new earth come? 
It's not going to be just like this, because I want you to see here at the end as we begin to think through these things, is that in the story of the first Adam in the first garden, we do hear echoes of the full complete story that comes with the second Adam and the second garden city. What's life in paradise like? Well, number one, it's living in the presence of God. God has created heavens and the earth, stretching them out like a tent, the Bible keeps saying, a dwelling place where he can meet with man, union and communion with his people. God longs to be with his people. And understand how majestic that was at this time, at this place in paradise. If you skip over to verse 8 of chapter 3, you'll see how ordinary in this comment from Moses, how natural it was that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Just normal business. Walking and talking with God, such as living in the presence of God. But also, of course, this is a text that's telling us life in paradise is also living in dependence on God. Mankind created from dust, from a rib. Absolutely no power, wisdom, or thought contributing to our very own creation. God did it all and sustains us all. You know, I remember hearing this story one time of an author named Alex Haney who wrote this book, I think it was in the 1970s, called Roots. And he used to write in his office underneath a picture of a turtle on top of a fence post. And eventually, one of his friends came along and said, what's the deal with the turtle on the fence post? And he said, well, every time that I'm tempted to think I'm doing something significant and important, I remember that I'm just a turtle on a fence post. He had help getting up there. In the same sense, humanity, even from its glorified, blessed state there in creation, is still dependent on God. Help to get there, into the Garden of Eden. Rested there, placed there, formed there, fashioned there in order to be with God, but also to be with one another. Living in paradise means living in the presence of God, in dependence on God, but also in obedience to God. I want you to see this, especially in our life in Jesus Christ, it very much is a life of obedience still today, isn't it? And it's not this kind of hard, rote legalism and ritualism that God commands us to, because even before the fall of sin, there was obedience. It was mankind's job. It was humanity's joy to obey God in the blessed state of the garden in Eden. I wonder how much joy you get out of obeying the Lord, how much delight you take in observing and keeping his commandments. So this is life in paradise, isn't it? In the presence of God, in dependence on God, in obedience towards God. But we know the end of the story, don't we? Just move a few sentences to the right, and it all goes terribly astray. Man falls into sin. The covenant curse of death falls on him, and he's banished and kicked out from the garden. We know that this story doesn't end here in Genesis chapter 2. But do you also know that the story doesn't end in Genesis chapter 3? It's the story of a second Adam, a last Adam that's going to come and redeem humanity. He who was created in the image of God. He who sustains the universe by the word of his power. He who was formed specially in the womb of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. He who was not just going to keep one law. He who was going to keep the whole law. He was formed and fashioned and grown into maturity so that he might be deformed. Do you remember Isaiah 52? He was marred beyond human semblance. Deformed so that sinners might be reformed through turning from their sin and trusting 
in Jesus Christ. You know the story, don't you, from Ephesians chapter 5 when it reflects on Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Ephesians 31 and 32 says, this refers what? A husband will leave his family and cling to his wife. This refers to Jesus Christ and the church. The eternal Son of God who left his Father's right hand in order that he might come and redeem. He might ransom. He might rescue a bride for himself and make them one with him. There's also a sense in which it is very true from the last chapter of Scripture that he's bringing us to that tree of life that Adam and Eve were not allowed to eat from before they fell into sin. Revelation chapter 22, verse 14 says, Blessed are those who have washed their robes so that they might have a right to the tree of life and that they might enter into the garden city through its gates. Would you live in paradise with the Father in holy communion and union forever? You must wash your robes in the blood of Jesus Christ who gives you the eternal life represented in that tree of life, who opens the door to paradise in His presence as the new heavens and new earth come. So life today still is, isn't it, in Jesus Christ about living already in the dwelling place of God in total dependence and obedience on Jesus Christ as we look forward, as we await that eternal home, a future glorified, perfect blessedness in the garden city, eating of the tree of life because of what the last Adam has done for us. Let us bow in prayer together. Father, we are grateful that you are a kind God, that you're not just the mighty creator of the universe, that you have drawn near to us, that we might call you our Lord God. We thank you that you have drawn near to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have extended to us the promise of forgiveness. Father, we confess that we are often full of shame. We are often embarrassed. We often want to hide from you. Help us, we pray, to uncover ourselves before you in repentance and faith this day as we want to serve Christ, as we want to know you, as we want to love you and obey you as you have called us to. Give us the spirit that we might do just that as your children, as your people, longing evermore for the promise of the paradise to come. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us stand together as we want to respond.